So this is like the most interesting interview I've ever prepped for because I normally dig into the interview guest, but instead Nate dove into my personal life. He asked for my address, then he had me down in my basement searching for my serial numbers on my furnace and water heater. You're certainly thorough, sir. <laughs> well, I, I figured talking about your houses will actually be more interesting than a lot of other things. Yeah, I don't know that I got the same level of treatment, Nate. You, you already have a new tight house, Jigger. What are we going to do with your house? I know, it's tight. Yeah, I sent Nate pictures of my house, which is a manufactured house. So it was made off site and it was like duct taped or stapled together when they brought in these four big pieces. And uh, you would never know, but I'm really curious what it means for energy efficiency and the future. Oh my God, we're, this is like a support group for homeowners. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, we talk to the house whisperer himself. But first, a word from our sponsor, Sense. Sense lets you know what devices are on in your home and how much electricity they're using so you can save energy and see what's happening all from your smartphone. It's a little orange box that connects to your electric panel and samples power a million times per second. It's a device that'll get more important as we electrify more of our lives. To find out more, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's sense, S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. There's a new phrase bouncing around energy circles, electrify everything. This week, we'll talk to a guy who's making it his personal mission to rip gas meters out of homes and move us closer toward full electrification. As many have learned from personal experience, and as I've found out, it's not that easy. But it may be getting a lot easier in California. In the second half of the show, we're going to tackle California's new building codes. Starting in 2020, most new homes will have to come with solar panels on the roof, and there are incentives for electric space heating and water heating, a very big step toward the electrification of everything. Although the codes have created a very strong reaction, both positive and negative, and we'll look at both sides. I am flanked on both sides by my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's there in Washington, D.C., back and fresh from her vacation last week in Tuscany. What's up? How you feeling? I feel great. Uh, it's it's well worth going and eating a whole lot of pasta and drinking Chianti and just not having anybody but your spouse with you. <laughs> you return just in time for the biggest controversy to rock the internet since the blue dress, gold dress fiasco. Yanny or Laurel? Which do you hear? Yanny. And my husband will never forgive me. <laughs> it has truly ripped apart the Lacey household, too. I hear Yanny, he hears Laurel. Although, if I listen to the one that's registered at the higher at the higher levels, I hear Laurel. Yeah, there's a really neat new tool where they've EQ'd out the sounds. And you can hear, if you hear high frequencies, you hear Yanny. If you hear low frequencies, you hear Laurel. So, Jigger, what do you hear, Yanny or Laurel? Laurel. Because clearly I'm old <laughs> and all my high frequency abilities are gone. Yeah, yeah. The, mine are diminishing as well. I've got headphones in my ears like 12 hours every day. So uh, I'm I'm firmly in the Laurel camp. Well, did you see the one on Twitter where um, it was Amy Hart from Sunrun did, do you hear solar or coal? <laughs> no, I didn't see that. It goes, solar. It's inevitable. It's great. <laughs> We're going to cover a bunch of topics in home performance today, namely the pathway to electrifying everything and why the current home efficiency paradigm sucks. 
This week's guest has written extensively about both those subjects for GTM and other outlets. His name, Nate Adams, and he's really making a name for himself in the home efficiency world. Nate co-founded Energy Smart Home Performance with his wife, Rachel. They are an Ohio contractor that focuses on deep efficiency retrofits and home electrification. He's also the author of the Home Comfort book, a very thorough guide to, well, home comfort. Nate, welcome. Thanks for having me here, guys. This is just a blast. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, Well, a lot to talk about. We've been looking forward to getting you on the show for a long time now. And as I said, you've been writing a bunch of great columns for GTM over the years. I initially met you through a mutual friend and a collaborator of yours, Ted Kidd, who's another efficiency expert. And a few years ago, you guys started writing about um, the problems in monitoring and verification problems in efficiency, sounding the alarm basically arguing that the home efficiency paradigm is broken. So why do you believe we're doing efficiency wrong in this country? It's pretty simple. We don't deal with things that consumers actually care about. We tell them what they should care about and don't ask them what they care about. And what do they care about? Comfort. As Amory Lovins has famously said, hot showers and cold beers, right? That's exactly it. I mean, a a high-performance home is comfortable, healthy, long-lasting because it doesn't have moisture problems, and efficient. That's how a house should work. Okay, so you've you've transitioned to focusing on um, deep retrofits. You know, you think that kind of the shallow home retrofits that dominate the industry are not the right way of going about efficiency. Why is that the, the case? And that, that kind of brings me to the, the philosophy behind your business. So I used to be an insulation contractor, And we did pretty good work, but all too often we didn't actually solve problems. And that's because we weren't going far enough. So you have to look at most houses like a 400 pound guy with diabetes. Uh, They're really sick. And so if you intend to make them healthy, you can't say, well, we're just going to not eat dessert on weekends and we'll probably lose 10 pounds a week. You have to go further to actually make the houses work. Well, and so a part of part of my argument um, that you and I have had together, Nate, is that I just don't see this happening without mandates. I just think that your line of argumentation is very similar to, you know, like the clean food industry that says people want, you know, food whose ingredients they can read in a label, which is true when you interview them, but not true when you look at their buying patterns. Well... So for years, I haven't had a good answer for you, and I think I finally do. Um, So what contractor is in a home talking about comfort twice a year? Your air conditioning contractor? Exactly. Um, And when it comes to these projects, the time to do it is at HVAC replacement time. Uh, Like I asked... Stephen to send me a picture of the model number of his furnace so I could understand what the equipment is at his house and if that was something that would offer an easy path to electrification. Um, and it's it's okay. Um, it's, it's not an amazing piece of equipment, but it's not a bad piece of equipment. Uh, so if we have HVAC contractors asking good questions of homeowners about do you have any rooms that are more than two to three degrees different from any other rooms? Are there any rooms you don't use because they're too hot or too cold at different times of the year? If that becomes more common 
and the process that we use becomes more common, uh, which we're, we're about to start development on a platform, kind of like an Airbnb for home performance, that concierges the experience for both the homeowner and the contractor so that it walks them through the process automatically. And these upgrades happen much more easily than they could today. Because right now you're correct, this doesn't exist because it requires a very different way of thinking. So, so I want to push back, Jigger. Per usual, we've kind of accelerated really fast into this conversation. But I do disagree with your analogy there because what gets results in nutrition and fitness are people who are there kind of holding your hand, giving you a nutrition plan, um, helping you through workouts. And that's kind of like what a good home performance contractor should do is focus on results and help you every step of the way. It's not going to be mandates. It's not going to be the state government saying we're going to ban this certain type of food. I mean, that helps to some degree. It sets a baseline, but to get real results, there's a lot. There's a process involved, and you're you're working with someone directly to get toward a goal. Right, but those people aren't free. So ultimately, you have to pay those people to help you, whether it's your insurance company that pays you or otherwise. And so, you know, my sense is for every Nate in the world, there are probably 8,000 HVAC contractors who don't want to be your performance contractor. And in fact, they're so bought off by carrier and train, they actually want to sell you exactly what's in their portfolio. And they're not interested in giving you a solution that's custom made for your home. But instead, they're trying to get you into a product that day and get it sold, financed through their existing financing and in installed next week. But that's a loaded question. Jigger, <laughs> I was waiting for you to come out swinging, man. You, 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 it was like two and a half minutes. Uh, <laughs> um it requires a different mindset. So the sales guys for HVAC companies are not going to drive this because they want that fast sale. So part of how I look at this is like a a relationship path. So in a relationship path, say you're 20 years old, you walk into a bar, you really have two different paths. Uh, You can have the long-term relationship path, hopefully leading to marriage, or you can have the one-night stand. The one-night stand is not a satisfying way to live your life. Um, That doesn't lead to deep relationships, but that is what HVAC contractors are looking for. They want that fast sale. The service techs who are in there twice a year to make sure that the furnace is doing okay and the air conditioner is doing okay, uh, those guys are thinking longer term. So if they're smart, they don't go for the sale the first year they go in uh, on a service contract to take a look at the unit. They want to you know, make a little tweak here, a little tweak there. Okay, Mrs. Jones, you probably have about five years left on the system. Uh, and then the next year, okay, you probably have four years left on the system. So they are thinking longer term. They are thinking in a relationship. So just like Stephen, you were talking about, what you need is a relationship when you're going to make a substantial change. And the service tech can be the beginning of that path. And we're just starting to work with a couple of HVAC contractors to see just how our process adapts to them. All right. So how about the customer? I think of the customer as like the bartender who's trying to shut it down this one night stand versus long-term relationship and says, I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. So how do we get the customer to care? One of my friends, Allison Bales, who writes the Energy Vanguard blog, his blog gets fifteen to 20,000 hits a day. 
he's talking about building science and comfort. There's people out there looking for these answers, but the problem is most of the answers are generally 201, 301, 401 level. And they also don't connect the dots very well from the, the theory to what actually needs to happen in the house. So if the industry was better at connecting those dots, it would make this much easier. But what's the economic incentive for you? Okay, so you've clearly made a choice to pivot and focus on projects that have uh, meaningful value for homeowners. You're working with them around the kitchen table to establish a set of comfort goals, what they want their house to do. You're an energy concierge of sorts. Um, Is that because you've made an economic choice or because it's a philosophical choice? It's just something that you think should exist in the world. Well, it started as a philosophical choice, but we knew that we had to make it a business model. So how long do you think I speak to any client unpaid? Probably a while. Zero minutes. Zero minutes. Really? Zero. I would think it was a hard, long sell. Not at all. Give me your secret, Nate. (laughs) (laughs) Content marketing. Uh, The website that uh, I've built uh, with my partner and my wife, uh, it has lots of good content so people feel like they know me before they reach out. I mean, not unlike listening to the three of you, I feel like I know you guys way better than I do because I listen to you every week. So the relationship has already begun before I show up. But I don't go to their house until they pay me at least $200 to do a blower door test and figure out what they want to solve. Um, And then the energy audit we charge for as well. So our customer acquisition costs are actually negative, and we think that that is possible to scale. Well, but look, Nate, like I, I, I am happy to be one of your biggest cheerleaders, and as you know, I've certainly, um, you know, tried to figure out how to take your message farther, um, including, you know, sort of like, I love your book, I love the work that you've done, some of the criticism you provided at NYSERDA and other places, but I just think that, like, what I'm really interested in is gigaton scale solutions. And I think it's very obvious to me that the money that we've spent since 1975 with Emory Lovins on retrofits has really largely never scaled, right? I mean, it's never really gotten to the point where folks say, forget the rebates and incentives. This stuff just pays for itself. We're going to amortize it over 30 years, put it into our mortgage and get it done. And so I just look I think to the extent that you want to be a lighthouse project that gets a whole bunch of people interested and you're training one person at a time and all that stuff, I think that's great, right? But I just think that when you think about how this is going to be successful, I do think it's going to be successful through mandates, not through you know education of consumers. I think that is more about program design and and how you get to whether it's a mandate or you know i think of codes and standards and yes they are mandates they are a type of goal but it also isn't forcing a customer to do something that they don't want to do you're still giving them choice it's just that the manufacturers and the service providers have a certain set of codes and standards they have to follow so i feel like there's there's more of an issue about program design and how we scale that well that's absolutely right catherine i absolutely think you got to give people choice without actually giving them choice. I mean, it's like every refrigerator out there is energy efficient. They actually can't choose the old one anymore, right? But you make them feel like they have choice because there's 15 models on the on the floor. Um, what we're trying to figure out is how do we make this more like a Tesla? Uh, so I've looked at the numbers on this. Jaguar spends about $3,000 per car in marketing to sell a car. Tesla spends six bucks. And the reason is 
the customers have a really good experience and they turn into major advocates for the product. My wife and I went to the grocery store a couple of years ago and there was a guy there sitting in a, a Model S Tesla and I pulled up, said, nice car. I've got a deposit on a Model 3. And he looks at me and says, have you ever driven a Tesla? I'm like, no. He's like, "Here's get out. Here's my keys. Drive my car. Didn't know me from Adam. Let me drive his $110,000 car. Well, that, he's, he's an idiot. But, <laughs> but I, look, I think Richard Branson also has a $6 fee for Virgin Fitness. Virgin Airlines, Virgin everything, right? Why? Because he's Richard Branson. And I think Tesla's the same. If they didn't have Elon Musk doing all this marketing for free, they'd have a much higher cost for marketing. Well, we got Nate Adams in energy efficiency. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jigger, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, Jigger, right? But it's you don't have to have it one or you don't have to have one or the other. Nate's not saying that mandates don't necessarily work. He's just saying that you do need to have some kind of sex appeal. And you know what? I haven't heard anyone come up with any really good solutions for this. And this seems like one avenue to explore. With that said, the, some of the policy issues that Nate has raised has been that these mandates don't necessarily bring results. So one of the problems is that we don't track energy efficiency very well. We, um, you know, we have very uh, outdated methods of calculating energy savings, and we push very shallow retrofits that may not have a big impact. So, uh, you, thank you for making the argument for me. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's it, the key thing is giving consumers what they want. Um, so, what we have to do in every project that we do, we have to get three things to match up somehow. So, think of a Venn diagram with three circles. We have what the customer's trying to solve, so what their goals are, what the house needs, and the budget. And we have to get those three to cross somehow, or the odds are we're not going to have a successful project. And we find that that requires substantially larger projects than is typically done. I mean, when I was an insulation contractor, our average project was $2,500. Currently, our average project is $27,600. And we're doing this with around a 70% closing ratio. So this is, you look for something that's 10x better than what else is going on out there. And I think we're pretty close to that point. So this is, it is a change. Well, Jigger, whatever free advice Nate is has given you over the years, I think he's going to ask for his $200 pretty soon. <laughs> So, okay, so let's apply this to electrification, which is the theme of the dis- the discussion today. The electrification of everything is something that uh, a number of people have written about recently. We published a great story from Justin Gerdes, who wrote about Justin Gway, a friend of the podcast, um, who went through a really hard process to electrify his house in the Bay Area in California. And then Dave Roberts wrote a really fantastic piece about how uh, the push toward electrification in the residential sector is an important climate solution. And then, Nate, you wrote a great piece riffing on both of those and talking about your experience with this energy concierge service, how to basically continue pushing for electrification in homes, eventually rip out the gas meter, and get someone more packaged for a climate solution so that the solar has a bigger impact and uh, that they're not using as much or any gas at all. So talk about how you're applying this to electrification and what you think the potential is there. So 
I live in Cleveland, Ohio, which is a, a fairly cold climate. And conventional wisdom says that heat pumps don't work in cold climates. And we have challenged that. So uh, there's geothermal or ground source uh, heat pumps. We generally don't use those. We're using the latest generation of air source for the most part. And we find that those put into older homes. So the first four homes that we electrified were all pre-1920. So they're all century homes. When you do a home performance project and you get the house tight enough and well insulated enough for an air source heat pump to be able to carry the house through winter, their operation costs are very comparable to natural gas. And I live in frack land. Uh, we have very cheap natural gas here. It's like uh, 35 cents a therm. Uh, plus delivery, so it's maybe 60, 70, 80 cents, depending on how all the math works, delivered. And we're finding that century homes in Cleveland are cost competitive operationally with natural gas. So I have a visceral reaction to this because two reasons. One is that I went through in the 80s when I worked for utility, and I was actually a certified energy manager, so I did energy audits um, back in the day. Uh, There was a big push for dual fuel. So there was a big push to have gas to back up your electric heat pump, that gas appliances were considered way more efficient and more cost-effective than electric appliances. And so there was a big move to get houses, and my house has dual fuel, so I have gas water heater, and forced air with with electric heat pumps, um, gas cooking. And I have such a hard time getting around, getting my head around trying to take out all that gas and make it electric because it it seems to be efficient to be, but but you know, push back on this argument and this and this thought about all these homes out there that are that are dual fuel now that was that was done, you know, a couple decades ago, but that people are really used to. Well, dual fuel is a wonderful place to start, and just about any home can have dual fuel in it. Uh, An air conditioner and a heat pump are the same piece of equipment. The heat pump just has a reversing valve, so it can heat as well as cool. And the equipment's two to $500 more expensive, so anyone can do hybrid. But what you're thinking about is largely not your father's heat pump. Uh, The current heat pumps are far more efficient and uh, they have far higher outputs at very low temperatures than what the last generation did. So now we can stretch into climate zones five and six. So now we can cover the majority of the U.S. with heat pumps and have them be cost competitive if the house is relatively tight. Um, And to make it tight, you need to do a home performance project. And to do that, you need to have problems to solve that the customer is willing to pay for. And we come back full circle. Jigger, I want to contextualize this a little bit more. Why is continued electrification in the residential space desirable? Why is it a climate solution to begin with? Well, I think there's a level of confidence that many of us have today that we will decarbonize our electricity grid by 2050 um, in a way that we don't have that confidence around, you know, switching to all renewable natural gas from um, the current sources of uh, fossil natural gas. And so, so that, I think, from a policy perspective, is why we think we want to electrify everything. And I, David, you know, Roberts has talked a lot about this electrify everything thesis. And so, so I fully support where Nate's going in terms of electrify everything. And I do think that the vast majority of home builders 
will find it to be preferable to electrify everything. Because, I mean, the thing, the dirty little secret around home building is that the utility companies don't actually subsidize any of the infrastructure. The home builders have to pay ten or $15,000 per house to put in the electrical connection and the gas connection. So it actually costs them more to connect to both. And so they do it because they believe that there's consumer demand for it. But if there wasn't consumer demand for it, or like, you know, as Nate's trying to prove, then it would actually be cheaper for them to just save the 6000 bucks to connect to gas and um, you know use that money to electrify everything. Nate, before we did this interview, I gave you some personal details about uh, the equipment operating in my house. So think about my brand new house that I just moved into. Um, what would it take to transition me from gas to electric, from an equipment sizing and, you know, project standpoint? Like, what, what would you do if you came into my house and I wanted to fully go electric? So typically, efficiency and electrification don't justify a project on their own because they're not worth that much money. So coming into your house, like I mentioned earlier, we need to match up what the house needs, what bothers you about the house, so what the goals are to fix in the house, and a budget for it. So can I ask you a couple of questions? Oh, sure. Let's see how I'll answer them. <laughs> okay. Well, they're pretty easy. Uh, are any rooms in your house more than two to three degrees different from any other rooms? Uh, no, but I'm sitting in a three-by-three three closet right now with audio foam surrounded surrounding me, and it's about six or seven degrees higher than the rest of the house. So I'm very uncomfortable right now in here, but the rest of the house is very comfortable in all rooms. Okay, so that's a pretty localized problem, but uh, um, what would that be worth to you to solve? Uh, it wouldn't be worth much, because as soon as I open the door and I get the hot computer out of here it cools right down and the rest of the house is is perfect you know there's not more than a one to two degree change in temperature in the upstairs or downstairs so in matching house needs what you want to fix and budget we don't have much budget to work with so probably you should leave the house as it stands mm, interesting and i just wonder nate i know you're you're in the business of solving problems that come up one by one but when we really try to scale this um, we need to make sure that our new build is done right and and i just wonder you know my house was designed by as it turned out a gsa architect who tore down the old house and designed a house offsite had it manufactured and brought to the site to put together took no time and he designed it very, very efficiently. I mean, it's got to be cheaper to be able to do that, to manufacture homes that are much more efficient to start out and, and have our new build done that way. For as much of the market as will support that, yes. Uh, so I'm pretty familiar with manufactured housing and I'm a huge fan because it's built in a factory the same way every time. The problem is that there is... Uh, a pretty strong stigma against manufactured housing, which they don't deserve. Uh, but that's something that needs to be worked through before that becomes more popular. Well, in fact, I mean, this is, I mean, manufactured homes is actually a great um, analogy for the rest of this conversation, right? Because, I mean, Warren Buffett, I think, owns the largest manufacturing home uh, company in the country. I forgot what it's called, Clark Homes or something. And then, you know, one of our good friends, uh, Michelle Kaufman, you know, who ran 
the homes division of Google X, um, you know, built one of the most beautiful manufactured homes in the world, uh, which was featured at many museums, including the National Building Museum here in D.C. And, you know, her manufactured home company went bankrupt because of the stigma around manufactured homes. And the reason for that is because you have literally multi-generational stick-built home builders who just refuse to get with the times. And, and that's that's a difficult problem. Um, one way to deal with this that I've seen that's just awesome, uh, there is a steam expert in New York City named Henry Gifford, and he developed what he calls the perfect energy code. And all it does is specify what the maximum HVAC output per square foot of a building can be. And as long as the piece of HVAC installed is smaller than that, it passes. And I think that's brilliant. That's one way to do this if you're going to talk about a mandate. Uh, another way that might work, but it has a lot of technical difficulties that we don't really want to get into, is to basically outlaw air conditioners and require them to be heat pumps. And so then every house would get a hybrid at a minimum. Well, now you're talking mandates. That's just silly talk. Let's take a pause here and talk about our sponsor, Sense. Sense is this little orange box that may be one of the keys to unlocking the true potential of the electrification of everything. Sense lets you keep tabs on your home, lets you save energy, and makes the most out of your solar investment. It is made by the same team that brought speech recognition technology to market. They are now focused on the home. And Sense uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. Those real-time insights can let you know so much about what is happening in your home, particularly as it gets more electrified. And if you have solar, you can compare whole home energy use and solar production side by side, all with no monthly fee. If you're an installer and you want to help customers make the most of your solar investment, or if you're a utility and you're looking to deliver more holistic energy services, Sense can help there too. To find out more about what Sense can do for you, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. Okay, California has given us another reason to either love it or hate it. The state's Energy Commission passed new building codes this month that will require developers to put solar on most new homes. The goal? To make homes zero out their energy use. This particular policy is raising the hackles of some energy pundits and economists who say it pushes California toward the most expensive climate solution, rooftop solar. No surprise that the solar industry is totally psyched, as it'll give them an additional 650 megawatts or so of installs from 2020 to 2023. That's according to GTM's uh, tally. So, Catherine, tell us more about this policy that California just passed. Why is solar soon to be a part of these new building codes? Yeah, so this all started in the 1970s with the one of the heroes of energy efficiency, Art Rosenfeld, who really changed the way we think about and implement energy efficiency. And there is a state code, Title 24, that says the California Energy Commission has the authority to establish building efficiency codes, and they have to do this every three years. So every three years, they start a process you know, year one, getting ideas, year two, bringing stakeholders together, year three, implementing the new program. And what they're required to do is looked at, look at anything that's cost effective that will increase energy efficiency in their building stock, whether it is residential or commercial. So this is part of the process that's been going on since the 70s. And we're at the end of this next cycle of those three years. As it turns out, 
the savings that one gets in efficiency by doing solar and then also solar plus storage works and is cost effective in every single climate zone in California. And so it works and that's why they've done it. So single family homes that are going to be built with these 2019 standards, which go, which go into effect in 2020, um, we use about 7% less energy due to energy efficiency measures versus the 2016 standards, which were like in the last, in the last iteration. But if you add rooftop solar, you'll, they'll use 53% less energy than those standards. And so they've calculated that for every home, it would be about a $40 a month, a typical home, $40 a month increase. However, the bill savings are $80 a month for the typical residents with the net savings of $40 a month. So what this does is it ties in everything you can do, whether it's plug load, lighting, appliances, you add PV and you've all of a sudden increased it to 53% savings. So this is a really big deal and it makes economic sense. It makes energy efficiency sense. And as it turns out, it makes CO2 emission reduction sense. Now, there is a debate about all of that. Uh, one of the concerns is that they didn't consult with a lot of experts, energy experts or economists on creating this rule. This brings us back to the bigger debate about mandates and this you know, this feels different to me, like it feels more intrusive. And I want to get all of your feedback on this, because it's essentially forcing people to put a power plant on their roof, right? It's not like a different type of heating and cooling system. It's not a different water heater stuff that is in houses already. It's a new piece of equipment that has a very different life cycle maintenance need than, you know, insulation or windows or, you know, a new heat pump. It just feels like uh, maybe a bit too far for a lot of people who have sounded off about this. Any thoughts on, you know, why solar might be different than other pieces of equipment that are seeing similar mandates? Well, and I would say just on, on the compliance piece, there are a lot of options. So you can lease the equipment. You don't have to own it and maintain it on your own. You can lease it. You can use community solar. There are a lot of ways that you can implement this that don't require you to purchase PV panels. Well, and I also think part of the context here is that this is actually a walk back from the mandate that they passed three years earlier, which uh, which forced all new residential homes to be net zero energy homes starting in 2020. So this is a far more flexible, far more sort of like accommodative standard, I think, than the net zero energy home standard. So it this decision rankles me just a little bit, like I'm pretty conflicted. But the key thing here is this feels like a supply push rather than a demand pull. And that's something that bothers me about it. But at the same time, it's going to create more solar, which is good. But then there's another piece to it too, which is a capital efficiency piece. So if we're talking about decarbonization, which uh, my friend Bronwyn Berry wrote a great little piece uh, digging into the mandate more, if we are looking to reduce carbon emissions, the better way to spend the money, because the money will be limited, might be to make sure that houses are all electric. So they have heat pump water heaters or straight electric water heaters or heat pumps rather than furnaces. Uh, that may be a better way to spend the money because rooftop solar is a good bit more expensive than utility scale. And now Jigger's going to jump in. Well, no, look, I think the CEC is fundamentally saying unequivocally 
that they believe that the solar industry is an industry they can back without political consequences, that the solar industry has delivered jobs, megawatts, cost reductions in ways that every other industry in California has failed them. And they're basically saying, we are now going to put the responsibility of doing all of this stuff onto the solar industry. So the solar industry will deal with heat pumps. We will deal with energy efficiency. All of the stuff that's required to get that home to be in compliance will be done by the solar companies. They will not allow the energy efficiency companies and other folks to screw this up like they've done in the past. Well, I feel like this actually gets toward what my vision of the grid is, which is the customer becomes a resource and, you know, supply and demand sides are fungible. So the approach to these standards are, you know, you make sure the envelope is efficient, more efficient. This does level the playing field for all electric homes. You appropriately size your PV system. And then there are also all these grid harmonization strategies to make sure that, that this works in concert with the utility. So I think the utilities are definitely on board. And then you can reduce the required size of solar PV by 25% if you add storage. So I feel like this gets to all of these pieces together working to make this into a prosumer. And this is for new homes. So as a consumer, you're saying, all right, I want a new home. It's going to cost me less. It's less to operate. It will be more comfortable, as Nate says, because it's going to be more energy efficient and it has to be. Um, and so I don't see the downside to this. I don't know. This this mandate just feels different from for me. And I think it's because it's not just another piece of equipment that we commonly think of in homes that's more efficient or operates better. It's a power plant on your roof that you are forced to put on your roof. And I, I just that just feels very different from other building codes and efficiency requirements. I mean, look, I think that we're talking about deep decarbonization here, right? So the question becomes, are you still willing to fail for another 40 years or do you want to finally succeed? Fail in what way? Are you saying to me that without this mandate that California is on track for 50% of all new homes to actually hit this new like carbon reduction standard? Like, no, of course not. And now that we're actually passing this mandate, I guarantee you that PG&E and Southern California Edison and SDG&E, who have basically shunned all grid edge technologies, are going to be forced to finally implement them. Now that they have 100,000 homes and they know where they're going to be three years in advance, because the home builders file permits three years in advance, they're going to have to actually get into the 21st century in a way that they've never done before. They've always phoned in grid edge technologies. It is not a fundamental rethink of the way they do grid operations. Now, I guarantee you that they will fundamentally change the way they do grid operations in a way that values demand dexterity. And when you look at the actual rules, the rules actually specify demand dexterity in the code. It actually says that they have to actually have the ability to shift loads in the home as part of the mandate. Yeah, and the utilities are going to be doing implementing time of use rates too, all the three major utilities there. So that will be very complementary to this. I actually think in addition to having this on new builds, that this is going to incentivize existing consumers to do something as well, because they're going to also want to be energy efficient and be able to contribute and, and be prosumers. Nate, what do you make of Jigger's assertion that this is going to put those energy concierge services further onto the solar's side of the table? Well, I guess I'd just like to see it happen because I would, I'd love to see somebody else figure out how to do this. I don't care how it happens. My partner and I, our largest goal 
is to make comfortable, healthy, long-lasting, efficient homes the norm, not the exception. Um, one thing that comes to mind, though, is two of my very good friends started out as energy auditors for Solar City, and Solar City tried to push this as more of a product rather than a relationship, and they failed at that. So we'll see if, if it works, it works. And right now, I don't really care how it happens. However, the sausage is made, if it works and consumers love it, great. Well, folks, you should decide for yourself. We have so many resources on this. We have some of Nate's pieces on the efficiency industry, on his uh, philosophy behind the business, on electrification of everything from both Nate and Dave Roberts, and also this great piece from Justin Gerties that we published. And uh, we also have some pieces on the impact and reasoning behind the uh, new building codes in California that will create this requirement for rooftop solar. I would like to give one more huge shout out to Kelly Knutson of the California Solar and Storage Association and an alum of 38 North Solutions, by the way, who has done 25 interviews, including with CNBC on these new codes and standards and spent a great deal of time educating me on this. So thanks to Kelly. So let's finish the show and give our listeners a free electron. We're going to go around the horn here and uh, tell you something that's interesting happening in our work lives, our personal lives, something that we're reading. And Nate, I'm going to go to you last. I'm going to put you on the spot. You're the first guest who stayed with us all the way to the end of the show. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to give us a free electron as well. Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, this is a little bit of log rolling, which is that our firm, well, actually my business partner, um, Isaac Brown, launched while I was gallivanting around Italy drinking Chianti to my heart's content. He was busy launching a business coalition for conservation and climate, BC3. You can find it at businessc3.org. And this is a group of investors, um, including venture capitalists and business executives who have gathered together to try to hold our federal government accountable the same way corporates are becoming accountable for their climate impacts to try to make sure that the federal government is too. The federal government's one of the largest energy asset managers. And so all the decisions on public lands have a huge impact on, on climate and greenhouse gas. They currently 25% of the total U.S. fossil energy used for electricity, transport, and goods is on public lands. 40% of the coal, 24% of oil, and 14% of natural gas produced of domestically is was developed on our public lands and in waters. And 5% of solar, wind, and geothermal comes from public lands. So they're trying to change the equation on that and um, hold our federal government accountable. So we're pretty excited about that coalition. Hmm. Jigger, what's your free electron? So one of the biggest news stories I was following this week was uh, the announcement that Apple was joining um, Alcoa and Rio Tinto in a new to partnership. To purchase Tesla? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> a new partnership called Elisis. Um, and so Alcoa has you know, been making aluminum largely the same way since 1886. They've figured out a new ability to change the front end of the process that eliminates carbon dioxide and instead releases oxygen. So the potential environmental impact is huge. And if they really do get it fully commercialized, right now it's being fully utilized in a test plant um, outside of Pittsburgh at an Alcoa Technology Center. 
But with Apple's help as one of the largest you know, aluminum users in the world, and then also with Rio Tinto's help as one of the mi- largest miners in the world, and Alcoa, the largest recyclers and processors in the world, um, there's a real chance that we could eliminate carbon dioxide from the aluminum supply chain. Nate, what's your free electron? So I watched a great video this week from Tony Seba, uh, who talks a lot about electrification. And uh, the video is called Revolution with EV for uh, electric vehicles in there. And he made a pretty wild assertion. He says that within one to two years of level five uh, automation or uh, level five uh, driving from uh, automated cars, that the entire market is going to shift within several more years uh, to basically be electric cars and uh, move away from ownership. And that was a really shocking thing for me to listen to, but I I think he's probably going to be right. Yeah, I think the one-two punch of automation and electrification is very powerful, and they will both propel each other. I, per usual, have an audio recommendation. We like to recommend a lot of podcasts on this program. And one of my favorite podcasts is called Embedded from NPR. Kelly McEvers, who's a really fantastic journalist at NPR, goes and with the team to some place or delves into some topic for multiple episodes and investigates, gets behind a particular story. So they're often stories that we think we know, but they get even deeper. Uh, They recently dug into a lot of the uh, Trump family's businesses, and their most recent episodes have to do with the coal industry. And they are in the Appalachian coal region, taking a journey through the area after Trump's election. They talk about a number of subjects, the history of reporting on coal country, and why locals are really cynical about outside reporters, and they try to break that cynicism down. Um, how the change in coal prices lifts or lowers spirits in coal country. They follow a job seeker whose mission in life is to work in the coal mines. And then there's tons of other stories weaved throughout. So I think there's a lot of drive-by journalism about coal country. Uh, local, A lot of local newspapers and radio stations have shut down. So there's a lot of national reporters just swooping into these areas and trying to tell a good story. This one feels different because they spent so much time there. And I think it's worth your time. So go check it out. The podcast is called Embedded. And with that, we are done, folks. Thanks to Nate Adams for joining us for the entire show. Good to hear your voice again, Catherine. Glad you had a good vacation. Jigger, always a pleasure to debate, discuss, spar. Um, A reminder, I'm going to be on vacation starting May 25th for a couple of weeks. So next week we'll have another episode, but we'll be off for a couple of weeks. In the meantime, you can find all our back episodes. Also, go listen to our sister podcast, The Interchange. We just posted this week our deep decarbonization draft. It is a nine-pick sports fantasy-like draft between me and Shale picking our best decarbonization uh, technology picks. Go rate and review this podcast. Go subscribe where you get your podcasts and send us an email if you want to uh, hear us talk about something that's of interest to you. Also, send us a voice memo in a quiet room from your phone, and maybe we'll address it in an upcoming Q&A show. With Catherine Hamilton, Jigger Shaw, and Nate Adams, we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week. 